You're listening to Bridging Resistance Radio. Bridge of Hope. You hold one side, I hold the other, and we meet in the middle. Welcome to Bridging Resistance, Relationships and Resurgence Radio Project, a special series that aims to connect Indigenous and non-Indigenous people through the transformative power of telling our own stories and listening to the stories of others. We hope to empower, inspire, and learn about cultural resurgence and reclamation in the face of ongoing colonialism and racism. So listen up, Thunder Bay and beyond. This episode of Bridging Resistance expands on the theme of sexual violence to look at institutional structures, access, and representation. Both guests briefly talk about how they have come to find their own voice and the importance of culture. Tanis Castern shares reflections about her experiences in the education system, overcoming barriers, and her current research on opioid addiction and methadone treatment. Meanwhile, Joyce Hunter talks passionately about the pursuit of truth in journalism and why she wrote the poem, You Said You Were Unbiased. First, we sit down with Tanis Castern. Could you introduce yourself? Sure. My name's Tanis Castern. I am an Ojibwe Kwe from Fort William First Nation. I've lived here all my life. I'm the mother of four teenagers, and I'm also a fourth-year student in my undergrad at LU, currently in an Indigenous Learning degree. Right on. And today you're working on a little bit on your thesis. Can you just briefly tell me a little bit about your thesis? Sure. I'm doing uh, my fourth year honors thesis on opiate addiction and methadone maintenance therapy as a solution. And uh, the reason I chose that is because of the epidemic of uh, addictions, not only in Thunder Bay or in Fort William First Nation, but Canada-wide. Uh, it's a very serious problem. So there's not enough research done within Indigenous communities, so this was an opportunity for me to explore the history of uh, Fort William and, and see what's been done and see what can be done to give better access to treatment options than methadone. With your research project in the works and also being strong voice in the community, what change would you like to see? In the city and, and Fort William First Nation, first in regards to the opiate crisis and other substance abuse issues, I would like to see more treatment programs available and not these high wait lists and so many different criterias to go through to get help and, and, and the right kind of help. I'd like to see more holistic healing than westernized um, because I believe westernized only treats the problem medically, not um, spiritually, emotionally, physically, or, mm-hmm. or mentally, as holistic does. And in my personal experience, I'm 11 years sober this year and clean. And mm-hmm. so to me, finding a piece of myself that I didn't even know existed was definitely what I believe helped save me and put me in touch with who I really was as a Anishinaabe woman that I didn't even know I was. I was born half, my dad was white and my mom was native. So being raised as a Bill C-31, that's what I remember my mom calling it when I was a kid and I always remember that. So Mm -hmm. it's been um, an eye-opening experience 
coming to university because I didn't know a lot of my history because I wasn't taught it or because I quit school and dropped out and never heard it. But in in hindsight, I know that they weren't teaching me what I should have been being taught in the first place. So to come here after being out of school for 25 years and start learning the true history of Canada, it was uh, definitely <laughs> an identity crisis. I struggled with it and it, it became heavy and I got angry. I even got angry at my grandparents and, and so forth because of the colonial Catholic ways and, and so forth that we were raised. We were trying to figure out why, you know, why would our grandparents raise us this way? And yet we came from such great families, you know, and, and, and strong families. And, and so now in hindsight, three or four years later, I get why, you know, and really it wasn't a choice. That's why I motivate myself every day now because I won't always be here in this role at LU and I would like to make sure that the road is a little bit smoother for other Indigenous students coming into these spaces so that they can run in these positions and feel that they are part of this place and that they're smart enough to be here and that they have every right to be here and, and, and to stand up when you know that something isn't right or you know and having the support to be able to say that without intimidation in a place like um, universities and colleges is a very intimidating thing and so those kind of supports need to be in place for our students because they're already 10 steps back walking into these these doors um, just because of who they are and where they come from and, and relocating and so forth so it's a lot for our students and, and and being away from home so that's another thing Michelle, mm -hmm. just when you said to um, being away from home you brought up a couple of things that mm -hmm. makes me think about um, yeah culturally appropriate services cultural support just how important it is to to be able to talk to someone yeah in in reflection to that I would say that in my life I wanted to work with women and addictions young women and girls and because I know how it feels to be that girl or that woman mm -hmm. I know who I would feel comfortable talking to yeah. and when I went through my healing it was really hard for me to open up and trust and to this day it's the same thing um and i think that's because of our oppressive colonial um way of life that uh, the shame that goes with being an indigenous woman um we didn't even know why we're treated sometimes the way we're treated but i want to make sure that we have people going into these fields of social work and addictions and healing and whatever it may be that are service providers that they know that they have to they have to be on the same level with mm -hmm. your your clients because they need to know that you're you're not judging them that they're not they can let their shame out because they don't need to carry it no more mm -hmm. that was a big thing for me i carried my shame and i carried uh anger and it it ate me up and i, I turned it inwards on myself and it didn't turn out to be a very good result and uh I was already sick and tired of being sick. I thought there's got to be something better and, and I remember growing up at violence and parties and 
all kinds of things around me and and I I said I can't do this to my kids and I I just can't and I'm not gonna let my kids be motherless or you might as well say dead or alive when you're using your motherless because that's not the real person right and then being the oldest of 21 grandchildren I have 20 cousins under me and that's a we've all had to face uh, addictions and, and and some sort of violence or traumas in our lives and and we've all had to go through that healing and we're still healing but it's nice to see that that people are saying we're tired of being sick you know, and, and we just want to be happy and we want the same as everyone else to be able to come to school. And, you know, it, it is discouraging for students to want to come here sometimes, not mm -hmm. to LU in particular, but to any of these kind of places because you don't feel smart enough, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I didn't, I, that's for sure. I knew I was smart enough to make it through life and, and live to talk about it. <laughs> You know, I'm a survivor for sure. I lived in Thunder Bay for many years, and I remember seeing a lot in my day. In the city of Thunder Bay, as an Indigenous woman, it's not so easy um, dealing with different things that come up you during the day, whether it's professional, personal, academic. Um, and in my roles, I see different um, institutional policies and attitudes and so forth that sometimes get to be a lot heavy on a person mm -hmm. to carry because of those colonial ways that you know aren't right but you you can only do so much in the position that you're in but that's why we're here right to make that change and it's nice to see more and more indigenous people coming to school and are coming back like I did at 37 mm -hmm. so I, uh, I I like listening to people you can't learn what you need to learn in a classroom I you know academically you can but not personally and anything when you're dealing with indigenous people is personal especially today's age with the TRC and and everybody trying to I don't know maybe fulfill their in whatever it may be their requirement uh, that they hire indigenous people or that they enroll indigenous students or you know and I know that we're making headway with that and in these places. And I've been elected into as a, a senator on one of the Senate committees here. And, and then I was also on a chancellor electoral committee here. And that gave me an opportunity to sit around with people, you know, that I would normally be intimidated to sit around with. And I'm, I'm not, I'm talking 25 people, which all have PhDs and masters and, and so forth. But our deans of departments and and then after a while I figured you know what I'm just as smart as you all sitting here mm -hmm. you know and I'll have my piece of paper to make me uh, fit oh, back sure. more in yeah <laughs> but at the same time I would love to see more of our people in these roles in administration roles in these campuses um, you know such as Denise Baxter or, or uh, Angelique Eaglewoman so what do you think um, in terms of like being able to sit at these tables, what do you think collective decision making looks like? How would you describe, um, you know, 
an outcome of a good decision, I guess, or what's a good process? Does that make sense, I guess, to the question? Yeah, it does, because, like, for instance, with the Teaching and Learning Senate Committee, um, they com it's made up of different, uh, like I said, faculty staff, members, PhDs, but having a student's voice heard in each of these different capacities is a must. There's no way around that um, because we need um, students in mental health. We need students in whether it's sports and rec or any of the other departments that we have here. And they have to be the ones that are saying the changes are saying what they're happy with and what they're not. You know, what's going, the runnings of the institution and, and whose needs are being fulfilled. Are, are people feeling safe here? Are, Thunder Bay has had its known violence in the last few years, especially with uh, the high rates of murder and violence um, from theft and, and people just losing themselves in this world of addictions, which then they turn to gangs. And so it's just... Um, students that you know might be targeted as well I, I worry about that i worry about our women and even our men getting on the buses at night or studying late and the buses stop like who helps them get home safe and, and make sure of that and of course young girls and young men are going to go out it's you know university college days you know definitely time for being social <laughs> yeah and i just worry about you know, once they get intoxicated, who's watching their drinks and, and who's paying attention to where they go after the bar. And and I know that I've heard things lately in the city that concern me. And that's the way I am with my kids um, and my friends. But my friends are all, get, we're all not as much going out like we used to and with our mm -hmm. studies and so forth. But Adulting hard. <laughs> <laughs> Either that or wanting to cry from so much homework, but yeah. being here and doing all the work I do in the student yeah. movement, and I like being part of the student movement as well, the Canadian Federation of Students, um, where I'm, I belong to the Circle of First Nation Métis Inuit, and that's a branch of CFS, and uh, I've been involved for about three years now, and I started out through like University Student Union. It's been uh, definitely three years of one of the most valuable learning experiences I could ever, ever ask for. I've been fortunate enough to visit many universities, many provinces, provinces and conferences with um, such a highly remarkable, amazing people that are being educated as we speak in these different institutions, and they're all First Nations and. Inuit and Métis students from across Canada and that makes me feel better to know that we have hard-working passionate advocates in each province even though they have their days and get discouraged they keep getting back up and going and so being in Northern Ontario and coming home from these kind of trips is always <laughs> refreshing to be home in Thunder Bay and see the mountain and know that I'm home and even as hard as Thunder Bay has been for Indigenous people, I know that it's got to change. I think with um, with Fort William just recently signing the drug strategy with uh, Superior North uh, needles to have harm reduction and stuff like that, those kind of um, working strategies like the city of Thunder Bay working with Fort William to you know try eliminate racism and so forth 
I believe those are all great strategies and everything, but I'd like to see the follow-up in a year from now. Well, how good was it? What came out of it? Mm -hmm. What can we improve for the next year? You know, and all these different uh, police service board reps and all these reps that they want. Um, indigenous people, you know. So then when you do do that, then honor what we're saying. Take our opinions and our values and beliefs and our histories into account. You know, because we're just, uh, our, what we have to say is just as valuable. And because it doesn't come with a PhD or a master's or an undergrad piece of paper doesn't mean that it's not valid mm -hmm. or worthy, you Absolutely. know. Absolutely, yeah. So I think lived experience sometimes outdoes that piece of paper. Teaching Learning Senate Committee the other day, and they're talking about accessibility for mm -hmm. students, and I had to have special testing because I couldn't handle being in the big exam rooms and I had anxiety so I went for the testing and after three hours and nine hundred dollars I had a gentleman who mm -hmm. read me the result and that was a few years ago and according to Freud and all his test materials I shouldn't be here um, according to his three hours of testing I wasn't supposed to make it past I don't know grade eight um, which I didn't I, I dropped out in grade nine but mm -hmm because of personal family problems that were going on and, and sexual violence that was going on back then. So it made it pretty much um, impossible to go to school and focus and so I quit. And, and I brought that up in the Senate committee because I wanted them to know that just because the Freud perspective and the Western perspective told me I wasn't going to be sitting here, I looked at all those faculty members and I said, well just to let you know, I'm a fourth year student in my honors, I've applied to the in law school here. I write the LSAT, and I'm a senator, and I'm on the student union, and I'm also president of the Native Student Union. You know, so then my question came to be: Is where is an indigenous psychologist? Mm -hmm. Why are we not being tested on something that's geared to our histories and our environment and what we were raised in, and and start are revamping these curriculums that are based on men that have been dead and only served themselves for how many years so to me i could Mic drop <laughs> yeah i would like to see some women uh, theorists be talked about in school and it's like i get the concept of why we need to learn these things in school but at the same time mm -hmm. like the dms5 psychology i get all that your brain is a beautiful thing but at the same time, there's a different DSM-5 for Indigenous people because our minds were never our minds to begin with. So how could you test us when you weren't even testing the real us? Mm -hmm. That's what I always go back to. So in that Senate committee, I said I would appreciate, like, you know, I said I went to your manager of the accessibility place and I told him how I felt. And the guy's still down there testing, so how many students has he said this to before? You know, what are we sending our students to? And and what are they coming out of there? And that's what I said to that man. I said, when he was telling me all this, I st at the end, I said, you're lucky I'm a strong woman, because I could probably go home and hurt myself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I said, you made me feel that small and that dumb. Did that, how did he respond? Did he have a response? He didn't, no feeling. No okay. feeling at all. He and and I'm thinking to myself, here's an, a native woman trying to justify to this man why I dropped out of school at 15. Meanwhile, you had no business knowing why. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. are what got me here in this position that I'm in right now. You know, and like, who are you to, to tell me this? You haven't walked a day in my life. So, I know it gets frustrating with the men issue. For me, it's not being as, because I know they've always thought they were inferior to women, um, whether it's in professional, private lives or so forth. Me, I don't really tolerate that kind of <laughs> stuff you know and when there's a wrong done to me whether they're professional or not they're gonna hear about it mm -hmm. because they disrespected me and I believe that you treat people the way you want to be treated and I've I've made that a practice of myself because wrong ways that women are treated or approached or are spoken to and assume assumptions made on you know whether you're jogging in the park and you get things said to you or walking down the street or whatever it may be um no women need to speak up so do men in these kind of situations because that's what they thrive on that's their whole reason for tar targeting victims is that power mm -hmm. and and when you take that power back and tell them that you're not going to have it no more and you don't pay rent in my head you don't pay rent in my soul and, and nothing you got to go because until that happens, you confront your problems or you get rid of your substance abuse and you got to feel it numb, then that's when you, the real healing begins because for so long you don't even know that you're walking around numb. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, you're programmed and you're already numb from the real person that you were meant to be. And then you go put drugs and alcohol in your system or colonial world views and, and then turn it in inwards on you and then try come out of that mm -hmm. and when I see people in the city getting treated wrong if I see it I'll speak up you darn right I will mm -hmm. so I, it's changing I, I do have to say I've been involved I've been involved in every system whether it was um, the criminal system the social service system whatever it may be and I always wanted to practice law and I always wanted to fight and argue with people so I figured why not put the two into one and get something positive out of it and more so indigenous law to help increase the numbers of indigenous lawyers and judges but not only that but to have people advocating for the people that need us the most which is our own because right now we all know that the judicial system is one but mostly white so mm -hmm. and judges and lawyers and, and, and police services and so forth and indigenous people in the lack of trust and and hopefully that can repair itself so that assaults and and stuff don't get unreported like they have been known to for many many years so how many people got away with that you know and and I don't blame people for not reporting and and stuff like that but at the same time there's always someone that'll care you know whether it's a police officer or a cashier at a grocery store there's always someone to talk to you just have to be able to reach out because you can, nobody can get by in this world alone that's for sure and our young people with the seven deaths that happened here and I did a big presentation in Trent on the seven deaths because Canadian Federation of Students is so big on access to education so we did a presentation at the Circle of First Nation 
Métis Inuit uh, conference in June at, at Trent, and it was for the Ontario region only. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, you know what? These kids deserve to be honoured. Um, but it's a privilege for us to be in these institutions that we can come to school, that we got to leave our reserves, to come to cities, to to try different things and, and see world a new world compared to the reserve. So what we did was we got all the different campuses to create postcards. And I just wanted it. It didn't really dawn at me at the time what I was going to do with it. But I wanted to present it to the families to let them know that these other indigenous students throughout Ontario and so forth knew and they know that these kids had to leave their homes and and come here to go to school which was colonial reasons why they had to and and it cost them their lives and their parents and it really hit me this year when my oldest daughter graduated from the recreational therapy program and walked across the stage with some other amazing quays in their regalia and I'm thinking to myself, my God, those seven students, they'll never, their parents don't get that chance. They don't get that opportunity to see them graduate or go to university or get married or have kids. And that's when I thought, you know, we got to get these postcards made up. I got uh, it made into a book, Beautiful. all these uh, postcards. And I had intentions of getting it to present to the family. And, it just seemed like timing happened, and I was invited to the powwow this New Year's Eve uh, in honor of the seven young youth, and some of the families are going to be there. So one of the organizers asked me if I'd like to come and speak. So that's the reason I did that presentation, to create awareness around um, that the lack of accessibility faced by Northern students. And, and just to let the families know that we're in school, we're going to honor your kids and getting our education and going back to our communities and and taking that and, and working to improve our, our the healing of our communities because until our communities get healthy we can't we can't strive mm-hmm. and we have so many people that have all these talents we have artists poetry if the grandmothers and the grandfathers and the aunties and the uncles are sick then who's teaching these young children to become our future leaders and our future men and our future women that are gonna teach their their children, their grandchildren. And through my thesis research, that's what's concerning to me is right now, this those stories, those traditions, they've stopped. Not all places, but the trapping, the hunting, the fishing, and everything is not being taught from one generation to the other because of the sicknesses of addiction, our high diabetes or chronic illnesses in the north and in the north is where a lot of those teaching and land-based activities happen and and those are there's and stagnant because of addictions and and so forth you know and and that's what's that's where we're losing that and i could say that from experience watching my daughters build this birch bark canoe three years in a row from being 14 year olds not wanting to get out of bed in the first year to them being up before the alarm even rang and gone the third year tells me that that is definitely something that needs to come back. Stop sitting on iPhones and computers and get out there and start building birch bark canoes or or whatever it may be, pipes or build drums and our young people and instead of 
social media and, and all this time and agendas and, and we have to be here and we have to be there and we have to succeed and what ifs and, and we don't have enough money or, or just all these things that life... Turn back to the yeah, land. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard that so many times in my travels and mm -hmm. in my research it goes back to the same thing. And when I did my research methodology last year on westernized versus indigenous um, when treating indigenous addictions... It was, I knew from personal that I'm proof that it works for one. And then out of all the research I did, it kept coming back to the same thing and those themes. And, and that's why in this methadone uh, research now, I'm, I'm seeing it again. And I'm more acute to what it's telling me. It's telling me that they don't want to be on chemicals. They want to be on the land. You know? and, and with the ring of fire and everything coming into play in the next few years if it ever gets going um the concern is the opiate addictions and and the the sexual violence that goes on and sexual abuse in the north because of the isolation and because of the residential school intergenerational stuff that the communities are riddled with some of this and it's and it's devastating our communities so they're waiting for help they're not waiting for dollar figures, they're waiting for help. Mm -hmm. Dollar figures aren't going to save you and they're not going to make 10-year-olds not kill themselves. It's the roots of the problems that have to be addressed. And as ugly as they are, and nobody wants to talk about it, they have to. The high turnover rate of health professionals that go in there, and a lot of them aren't indigenous, so who the hell's going to talk to them? Mm -hmm. You know, these people are isolated and all of a sudden a do-gooder shows up, they're not going to talk to them. And I don't blame them, because I wouldn't probably, you know. But at the same time, who else is showing up? So we have to break down those walls of mistrust and sometimes maybe let a few people in at a time, you know, because without that, I wouldn't be where I am today. I had to accept non-Indigenous help mm -hmm. from other people, and some of my role models and mentors to this day are non-Indigenous, you know. And they've empowered me to the point where I don't know where I'd be right now without those interventions from non-Indigenous people that I didn't trust. But now I would trust with my whole heart, you know. So that would be my message for people out there. If you know something's wrong, do something about it. If you feel that something was said wrong, do something about it. Don't let anybody silence you with those tactics that we've been silenced with for so many years and the biggest one is fear because we don't sound smart enough or we don't belong in these places well i beg to differ i was taught back in 11 years ago at my final treatment center in mckizzy kenora was uh and it was a non-indigenous woman who said it to me and i've taken it with me everywhere i've gone in the last 11 years and it's never failed me wrong yet and she said when you have life, things come at you, whether it's stress, happiness, love, whatever it may be, ask yourself who is affected by it. Is it your little girl, your strong woman, or your warrior? And if it's all three, deal, you know, then process or who. And until she said it like that, I didn't really look at life like that and so when I would get hurt or somebody would do something to hurt me or say something that hurt me then I start thinking about it like that and if it was something that was like 
um, personal and it got, you know, my warrior, she was always in the front. But that was then, and anger never got me very far in the world and outbursts and frustrations. So then you throw a little bit of maturity in there and education in there and you get your strong woman out in the front. And you leave her, your warrior there because she's always needed. She's just going to have to sit in the back for a while. And your little girl's there. She's always going to be there, that little girl. So she told me, from now on, you look at that and you guide those three. And you, you, you determine who's going to be up there at the time when they need to be. You know, or when you need to be alone and you need to figure out who's upset or who's happy or whatever, you know. And now when things come at me, I try to think of it. I, I think before I speak in anger um, at these meetings, I've, I've definitely matured um, in professional settings um, that I would rather sit back and gather my information and facts first and then come back. Mm-hmm. Put my warrior on the outside line there and then come back with the strong woman with the backs up backed up education or facts to present my case and say well this is not the way it is and this is why and then neither you get places like that so and you're gonna be a deadly lawyer <laughs> i'll have to leave my warrior at home for sure because she's gonna get fired first day <laughs> yeah first day it'll be interesting i'm i'm very uh... thank you so mm-hmm. much tannis anytime now we will hear from Joyce Hunter. Oh my God, it's a relief. It's funny. Um, I was talking to this lady on the flight, and then she was saying it's really amazing, like for the age that you are, like the number of things that you've done, right? Um, yeah, and like you don't really think about it until you actually uh, start to write everything down, right? It's part of the like the interesting part. So anyway. So I come from Winnesk First Nation, which is a very small reserve on the Hudson Bay coast in northern Ontario. It's the second northernmost community, and there are only 250 people there. Um, or should I say, we are 250 strong. <laughs> and it was a strange place growing up because when you, when I, when I looked at the world around me, it felt so far and so isolated and so removed and so different from um, what you would see in city life on TV. Mm-hmm. And we only had two channels. I think it was like TVO and CBC, right? And um, I used to watch the news with my dad every night when I was like, I remember being as young as eight and watching Peter Mansbridge back when he had a full head of red hair. <laughs> yeah. Back in the day. Back in the day, yeah. So, like, my dad and I watched the Berlin Wall come down together, the Challenger, you know, uh, explode um, when it was flying out. We watched uh, Brian Mulroney introduce the North American Free Trade Agreement, as well as the very unpopular GST together. And, uh, like, what that did was in, instill in me in the love of, like, a love of the news. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, like, I was al- always naturally gifted as a child. I was very articulate and I I did not have a brain-to-mouth filter. I got myself in trouble a lot. I had very big ideas and I really like to share them with people. I also like to follow my older brothers around which they didn't appreciate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so um, eventually I went, went through um, high school and college and I studied at I studied journalism at Durham College and I graduated and I went on to have a very fulfilling and interesting career I um, I guess the greatest gift that it has given me was 
like a strong foundation of writing cleanly, clearly, concisely, strongly. Um, I think like for me that was uh, like the most important part of it. So anyway, last year, uh, Journalists for Human Rights, which is an organization that I co-wrote a proposal with, it's now called the Indigenous Reporters Program. So. What it does is it transfers journalism skills to Indigenous people in the remote north. More than 100 people have been trained in it. It's gone to like nine, I think, or 12 different communities now. And they've been published in the Outdoor Life Network, um, CBC, uh, Net News Ledger, Wawate. So, yeah, yeah. Um, but like, for me, what's always been really important is that they propel their own voices, they, they tell their own stories, they speak their own truth, right? Because like one of the biggest problems, I guess, or concerns that I've ever had with journalism is, is, is as an industry came later on in my life, right? Mm -hmm. Because I worked as a journalist for at least more than 10 years. I, I was 22 years old when I became a reporter, and I'm now 38. Like, I remember the first year I was reading the Canadian Press style book, right? And it said that Native people do not pay taxes, like in the section that teaches about journalism. And, and like, but I have to, like, give, I guess, the listening audience an understanding of what that actually means. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the Canadian Press sets the industry standard for all of journalism across the country, right? Because before there, a standard was set, like, mm -hmm. you could, you know, go pick up a newspaper in New Brunswick or Nova, or Nova Scotia or even in British Columbia or Ontario or everywhere in between and the way that stories were written, the spellings were different, all of those things, right? Yeah. And then so um, yeah. it, it was problematic that way and then so what happened was they created a guild, uh, they called it the Canadian Press and then what they did was they uh, streamlined um, how journalism is covered how to cover court, how to cover the like municipalities and their elections, the provinces, their elections, titles, you know, like lieutenant governor, colonel, mm -hmm. corporal, all of those things, right? So uh, um, there actually is reference books that Canadian press supplies. And when oh, yeah. you go to journalism school, that is your Bible. And they hammer that into your head, like mm -hmm. right from the moment you walk in to when you leave and even as a working journalist you will have to go back and refer to it all through your career mm -hmm. so um, anyway there's a section in there that talks about indigenous peoples and it, uh, it was really yeah like I said it was really problematic and, and I remember reading as a 22 year old that native people don't pay taxes um, but if you go to like Indian Affairs' website mm -hmm. you'll see that only 33% of native people actually don't pay taxes right even though it's like a treaty right and they have treaty relationships and things like that right so anyway I got on the phone I had a huge argument with the with the the desk editor for that section yeah. of the Canadian press style book and then the next edition that came out it said native people sometimes yeah. do not pay taxes <laughs> so bad yeah yeah but then the other thing that happened was Wawate Native Communication Society kept on calling me and my first job was at a daily like I worked for the daily press in Timmins as a, as a general assignment reporter and I did that for three and a half years and it was a it was a great learning experience because I covered court I covered city hall I covered you know provincial and federal politics and, and of course the goings-on of a, a, a small city in northern Ontario which was a mining town right mm -hmm. and so um, I, I came to understand the mining industry as well and like the effects that it has on the environment and all of those kinds of things and 
You know, they say that uh, journalists are supposed to be unbiased, but they're actually the most opinionated people in the world because they hear so much, they see so much, and they're, they're constantly disseminating information to the public. And, and they're constantly like in contact with people who are movers and shakers and who are decision makers. And, and so, um, yeah, you do come to form an opinion about uh, the world around you, right? And, and, and because you're so connected to it, um, and you really understand what's going on because you're so in touch with so many people. It, like, it gives you a very strong, complex look at how everything is connected, right? It's a very interesting uh, field to work in, I guess, a discipline. So it's interesting that way. I mean, you do have to have a certain type of personality. Like, you, you have to be somewhat aggressive. You have to be very curious. Um, I was just thinking what came to mind was like, how do you talk to people who won't talk to you? What? Uh, I don't know. Like, like I've never... I've, I don't know, like, one of the things that I've also had people tell me is that um, they find it very easy to talk to me, um, like, I'm very open to people, but that's the other thing, is, like, when you're in journalism, you ha you do have to be engaged in the relentless pursuit of truth, right, because that's what it is, and, like, like a lot of journalists will tell you that there's one side of the story, and then there's the other side, right, and, I mean, if the story is uh, really difficult, right? Usually, uh, there's one side who is going to tell that story and say these are all the issues, la 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 la, right? Mm -hmm. And then you just go to the if the one side won't talk, you go to the other side and you talk to the other side, right? And then you get all of the information from the other side, and then you go back to the to the other side and say this is what they say. And then so um, in doing that, um, then what what you find uh, is that they will respond. And and like if there was any like uh, erroneous statements made or um, misdirections or subterfuge, they're gonna address they're gonna them. Tell you. Yeah, they're gonna address them. Yeah. So I I mean that's really in a nutshell. That's how you do it. Like if they're not if they're not willing to talk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, but generally what I've always found is that there's always one side that wants to tell their story, right? And um, that that really is concerned enough to want to say something. Many of the most controversial stories that are out there usually happen because somebody comes forward and says, hey, you know, in, in some way I'm being oppressed or whatnot, you know, and, and I'm concerned about it because it's hurting me or it's hurting my family it's, or it's hurting my community or it's hurting my people, right? But one thing that I found, like, over the course of, uh, of my career, because I finally did agree to go to work at Wawate, was um, I, I started to meet with lawyers um, who specialized in treaty law and all of those kinds of things. But I also went to lots of meetings, like with chiefs, tribal councils, and First Nations, and then organizations that, that serve the community in different ways, whether it was um, the Friendship Centers, or the Native Women's Associations, or uh, homeless shelters, um, things like that, transition houses. And I began to really understand like how incredibly profound of an impact systemic uh, institutional structural racism and structural violence is having on indigenous peoples right mm -hmm. and then and then when you really start to look like outside at the world you realize that we are all colonized not just you know there was a, a group of different people who came because it wasn't just like the british people there was the, the portuguese the dutch and the spanish and you know so mm -hmm. there's like all these different groups that came over in even the Swiss, right? So they all came over and they all colonized different parts of uh, North, South, Central America. Mm. Um, but in doing that, like uh, they essentially all had the same mission though, right? Because they all belonged essentially to the same church at the time.
because the like like the the Vatican had a um, had a like had a very long reach and had already instilled in the early explorers that they were the superior race because because they were saved by God that that they were actually people right and they declared the lands that they came to terra nullis which is to say that there were no no people there they didn't have souls and they didn't count and so millions of people died as a result of that right and even the education system because um the the story and 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 therefore our education system that we have currently in place was written continuously by the pen holders right and so the narrative and the story that was told um is that they were they over um overinflated the story that they were the superior race right mm-hmm. Um, and then so it gave them a sense of entitlement um, culturally, socially, and and we can still feel that in society today, right? In the narratives and the discourse that happens in the collective Canadian consciousness across the across the country, uh, when news stories are told about people of color or Indigenous people, right? So I mean, from that perspective, it is problematic. And like as I said, in journalism, what we're doing is like we're engaging in the relentless pursuit of the truth, right? And so what we want to do is pull back the veil on that history because we have all been indoctrinated to participate in the social fabric of what Canada has um, become as a result of colonization. We are all colonized. Um, but the the context of how we're colonized is different if we're Indigenous or a person of colour or from the broader community, right? Um, how that looks and how we participate in it is going to be different as a result of that. So my diploma is in journalism and so... I went on to work with, uh, become the special projects officer working at Wawate, right? Because before all of that, I had learned over the 10 years that I was working uh, about Indigenous people and their issues and about how uh, on the on the one end when the residential school system was created that Native people were considered uh, needed to were considered lesser forms of of white people essentially, right? And so that they needed to be uh, turned and become English speaking and Christians and farmers and. Um, and but they were told that they were heathens and pagans and uh, inferior um, and, 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 and and that does a lot like like um, there was a lot of um, internalized racism um, children were abused um, and it, it, it created a lot of chaos social chaos family systems governance systems all of those social systems were destroyed um, and it took over a hundred years like it was a it was a hundred year process uh, a little longer than that 140 at least the in the broader community in the provincial schools that same message was being transmitted to the children right and so what it did was it overstated the contributions of the european community that that became canadians right um and how you know they came over and they survived and they built everything with their bare hands and they had a tiny bit of help from the native people and there was a couple of little um, native people's voices in there who who did something good for the communities right and so that and, and that story has continued to be told like i've seen rewritten versions in like like for grade 3 for example and it's like they're trying to soften the blow and not tell the full truth of like the the true horror and the true depth and breadth of the the desire to colonize quickly and efficiently and violently. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I worked as a journalist for 10 years, more than 10 years, I covered court, I covered city hall, provincial, federal federal governments, all of those things, right? And, and in Supreme Court cases, for example, when you look at the way that the Supreme Court or journalists cover it, they'll say um, the court allowed these Native people to, you know, hunt and fish on their lands or 
or or to trap or whatever it was right they continue to use that kind of language and it basically it, it is a symptom of indoctrination right what people don't learn in the education system they look to the media to, mm -hmm. to get their information to fill those information gaps well, what they don't realize is those journalists went to the same schools they did and got the same education on treaty on on relationships on the Indian Act on how funding is distributed uh, amongst First Nations against that of the broader community and uh, uh, and how that works they're not able journalism right now is not able to tell that story fairly and fully so that we can have an informed discourse nationally. So so, so, so then Journalism for Human Rights writes this proposal, right? And they want to transfer journalism skills to people in the remote north. And then they came to us and I was working as special projects officer at Wawate at the time. And then I saw the program and then added the component where we need to teach reporters in the mainstream and in schools about how, about how common pitfalls that, that reporting in the industry does. Um, when they when they cover indigenous people and their issues, and uh, because we need to have that informed conversation, and so, so I wrote that into the pro in, into the proposal, and then we submitted and it got funded, and, and it was it, and it was just a one year pilot project at the time, but then it got extended to three years, and it's been extended I believe yet again, right? So and the proposal has like on on the teaching reporter side, it's gone into Ryerson University, Algonquin College. Carlton, I believe, uh, Metro News, TVO, Incredible. CBC, yeah, more than a thousand reporters in the mainstream, whether they're students or, or re working reporters, have, have been through this program. Um, it lives at JHR, and it's it's a partnership with like my, my Wawate, right? Um, but that year, the Canadian Ethnic Media Association saw the, the design of that project and what it, what it intended to do, and they awarded us the Innovation Award, and they were just going to award it to us at Wawate, right? Um, and I fought like really hard to get journalists for human rights to get recognized because that program continues to evolve and grow. I got nominated for an Alumni of Distinction Award by Wawate Journalists for Human Rights for my contribution to that. Um, Congratulations. I think yes. <laughs> I, I got a phone call not that long after and uh, Durham College said uh, yeah we're awarding you Alumni of Distinction but we're also going to nominate you for a Premier's Award because like like y what the work that you've done has helped to challenge like the industry of journalism itself in Canada on indigenous issues which I thought was really cool uh, I went to the award I lost to a lady or like in my category I don't know how many of us were nominated but the, like like if you go back and you read like all the bios of all the people that um, have contributed in the community services category like they've done amazing things mm -hmm. like just each in their own um, discipline that they went to school for, right? Mine was in journalism, and this one woman, I think hers was in social work at George Brown, and she is a, a survivor of the sex trade. She then went back to school with only a grade 8 graduate uh, diploma and uh, became a social worker, and then she created an organization that, that protects and pulls young yeah. girls from the sex trade, and she uh, advocates at the UN level. Wow. Yeah, and I've never been so happy to lose to anybody. <laughs> I was like, I was like, ah, just so amazing. I just loved it. I know, right? Just be there. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was special. Yeah, it really is because, like, that's the thing. Like, our our young Native people do need to see role models, good, strong role models, and and that's the other cool thing is it was a Native woman who won that award too, yeah. right? And 
Um, we need more professionals in different fields who who contribute to the growing strength of our people in different disciplines, right? And so that, to me, is also very important, right? Because we need advocacy everywhere, in every field, for every... We need people to specialize in different areas who, who really understand um, all the issues, right? Like, for me, it's journalism, right? And one of the things that uh, we did was work with the Canadian press to rewrite that section on Indigenous issues. and. I think it's important that we have informed discourse. Like for me, that's the most number one important thing, and we're really not there yet. Yeah. What's your message to say? There's a young person who wants to write and is oh my god, for their voice yeah, you know what? Um, the brain is like a muscle, right? Like the more you use it, the stronger it will become. So read a lot, you know, and 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 this is something that I hadn't done at all was write poetry mm-hmm. right and I recently took that up and my very very first poem um, was rolling around inside me for I think like four or five days I had the title right at the beginning and it was you said you were unbiased and it was response in response a piece of writing who who talked about how native people are on a gravy train and are getting everything for free and um, I was so angry because he was a judge for so many years and he sat there and native people are the most oppressed people and are part of that school to prison pipeline and who are judged very harshly right and to come to the understanding that this is how he felt as he was looking down from his bench at you know person after person who was coming through and making judgments how much damage he must have done over his entire career really made me angry it really made me upset and and so I had to respond and and so if you are an aspiring writer write write every day you know journal write in your book write about what you see write about what you feel write about what you hear but mostly write about what you feel passionate about because truly good storytellers are the people who who connect to, to the soul of other people, uh, right? And and they their their writing is impactful in the sense that um, they can they can hear that story of the other person, right? And and that's and that's what it is, right? Like as a reporter, when you're when you're interviewing somebody, when they start talking fast, that's the part where you you, you keep up with them. You take those notes because that's that's what they're passionate about. And that's what's important to them. Better be practice on your on your note taking, like your handwritten note taking. <laughs> this initiative is made possible by the Community Fund for Canada's 150th, a collaboration between the Canadian Community Foundations, the Government of Canada, and extraordinary leaders from coast to coast to coast. We are also in partnership with the Thunder Bay Art Gallery and LU Radio CILU 102.7 FM. Follow us on Facebook at Bridging T-Bay and listen to share past episodes on resistanceradio.tumblr.com. Peace.